You can get your Bibles out. We're going to finish up the book of Jonah. So if you don't have your Bible marked, you can go ahead and start searching for Jonah. The little bitty minor prophet. I'll just back up from Matthew a few books, about eight books. You'll find Jonah between Obadiah and Micah. It's been a blessing over these nine weeks to study together. And I really feel like... um, especially last week and this week, the way the, the book of Jonah has laid out for us and God's providence has really been an opportunity for us to, to celebrate thankfulness in the midst of His Word through Jonah. And I uh, just appreciate Pastor Brian's Word last week and uh, the way uh, we have an opportunity to be thankful going into Uh, this holiday season, and then today again. We have so much to be thankful for. Last week I got to go, and uh, Sunday morning I was with Harbor City, and uh, very thankful for what God is doing there. Uh, It's just really a a humbling thing to see uh, a church uh, just born out of nothing, and and here's uh, God's people gathering together and, and worshiping Him and gathering around His Word and, um, you know, just sitting there, um, just taking all that in, looking around, realizing that uh, most of the people uh, in the room I did not know, which was a great encouragement to me, a real blessing to see uh, God working and drawing people to His church who otherwise wouldn't be in church or haven't been in church and so that's a real blessing, and it caused my heart to be thankful. I'm, I'm so thankful for you as a church and just for how you continually sacrifice yourself for the good of others. Um, you know, every day that I pull up on this campus and I see all this construction going on, I just thank God for you as, you know, we're sacrificially giving and building so that we can make room for people who we don't even know yet, aren't even here yet. And, uh, and that's an encouragement. Because it would be very easy for us to just, uh, you know, be content with where we are and coast along. And, uh, but we know that's not the heart of God. And so we're, we're grateful for that. I'm grateful for the time you got to spend with family. I hope that you were able to redeem that time that you were together. And maybe have some uh, wonderful redeeming conversations around things that are the most important things. I'm grateful for those of you in the room who are hurting and uh, reeling from loss and the fact that uh, you are able to be uh, surrounded by people that love you and care for you and walk with you through that, and that's encouragement. And God's just good to encourage us and give us things to be thankful for. You know, as a fellowship, um, just so many ways for us to be grateful. Um, This past week, I think it was Monday I got a package in the mail, and when I opened up the package, I was looking, sort of staring at this magazine in front of me thinking, did I order this, or who sent me this, or why is this on my desk? And so it sat there all day, and I just didn't pay much attention to it. And then uh, towards the end of the day, uh, I looked at it again, and it hit me. I remembered something, and uh, so I picked the magazine up, and it's a Lifeway, their uh, Christmas publication, so I picked it up, and I started thumbing through it, and lo and behold, there is 
an article about our church, and uh, it was very encouraging. I think it's uh, uh, it it'll make your heart thankful. It's uh, to see just how easy it would be sometimes for us to forget the wonderful things that God is doing here among us, and how uh, blessed we are as a people. Um, you know, I remember that they contacted me during the during summertime, and they said they wanted to do an article about uh, Rescue 100 and our church. And um, so I thought, okay, well, and, you know, here comes all these, you know, requirements and, you know, guidelines and all sorts of paperwork that I had to fill out and all this stuff. And so then it finally came down. I got through all that and then... The whole time I'm thinking, well, this probably will never get published anyway. And then I realized, okay, now we have to write this and submit it. So what are we going to do? So I did what anybody would do. I called Candy Ferris and I said, Candy, I need you to write an article about our church. <laughs> and so she did. And it was a Christmas article. And that's summertime. So, I mean, I've forgot all about that and uh, candy will you come up here please come on so here we are all these months later and in the december uh home life magazine is the a four page article that candy wrote about michael memorial look at this she is now a LifeWay published author. Thank you so much for writing that article. I know God wrote it, but listen, I think that's the best article that anybody's ever written. Of all the things that's been written about our fellowship and Rescue 100, that's the best one. And it's because it was written by somebody who's part of it. So thank you, Candy. What a blessing. And if you want a copy of that article, which you should, um, there's about 40 or 50 uh, copies of that magazine in the bookstore. You can go after service and pick one up because you can't go to Lifeway and get one. So you can, but you can get one. I think I have 40 or 50 copies in there. So the bookstore will be open afterwards if you want to get one. And I encourage you to read it and keep it. And let your heart be, be glad and thankful. What? It's a blessing. It's just a blessing to be around uh, things that God's doing. And then, you know, we uh, finished up last week. Thank you to all you that served and helped through the shoebox ministry and through collection week. And, um, you know, we set an ambitious goal of 750 boxes as a fellowship, um, which is an ambitious goal. And you brought in 809 so, amen. Way to go. Great job. As usual, exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ask or think. Okay, are we at Jonah chapter 4? If not, you can grab that hardback Bible, turn to page 1069. Jonah chapter 4. We're going to finish our look at the book of Jonah. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. God, we come before you. Lord, recognizing we have much to be thankful for. Lord, help us to see 
that so many of the things that we ought to be thankful for, we so oftentimes miss. We don't recognize them or receive them as gifts from your hand. Or maybe sometimes, Lord, we just take things for granted. But you are a great God. And if there's anything great about us as a people, it's only because you are so great as our God. And so, Lord, we just say thank you. Thank you for letting us love one another. Thank you for letting us walk together, study together, learn together, hear together, sing together, cry together, laugh together, serve together, sacrifice together. God, thank you. Thank you. So as we come to this season of thankfulness and move into a time of celebrating your birth, God, what a glorious thing it is to be called a son or a daughter of you. What a blessing. What a blessing. So will you encourage our hearts this morning through your word, we pray. We, we ask that you would grant us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and that you'd accomplish the work in us that only you could do. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to catch us up quickly, the book of Jonah, contrary to popular belief, is really a book about a man named Jonah who is the perfect modern-day church member. Jonah looks like he has everything together. He's very religious, very devout, and he makes the Christian life look easy. And what we see is that God is unwilling to leave him in that state. God desires for his children to grow in likeness to his son Jesus. And so he intervenes in Jonah's life in a multitude of ways. And like a nuclear bomb, he comes to Jonah and sends him on a mission to take his word to the people of Nineveh, who are Jonah and Jonah's people's greatest adversary and enemy. And so what ensues is Jonah trying to to uh, run away from God, even though he believes in God and knows God, he's trying to run away from God. I mean, we've learned so many different things about Jonah and about God through this process. But suffice it to say that by the time we get to Jonah chapter 4, Jonah has tried to run. God has relentlessly pursued him. Jonah finally surrenders and goes to Nineveh and says the things that God sent him to say, and the people of Nineveh repent. And revival begins to sweep through this wicked city of Nineveh, and people who seem impossibly far from God turn to God and start to change their ways. And Jonah doesn't really know how to handle this. He's bewildered and bitter and discontent because... This isn't what he thought was going to happen. And these are people who he has spent his life hating. And now God is showing grace to them. And all the while, God is showing grace to them. He's showing grace to Jonah. And he's teaching Jonah. And so Jonah finds himself in a very familiar place. All of us have been there and will be there again. Where, you know, life is sort of rolling along, and then suddenly there's a bend in the road. There's a detour. There's a, some shift, some unforeseen circumstance or situation. Suddenly our expectations aren't being met. What we thought was going to 
B is not so, and we're not really sure what to do. We don't like it when things don't go according to our plan. If you know anything about my Thanksgiving this year, you know that, like I always say, God uses it, whatever I'm preaching on, He's doing in my life. And trust me, my Thanksgiving didn't go according to my plan. But it was wonderful and it was good. And it was all according to the, the providence of God. And I'm grateful for it. But it's such a good teaching moment. But see, so oftentimes, here's what happens. When life doesn't go the way we think it ought to be going, or when things last longer than we think they ought to last, a coldness towards God can start to grow in our heart. And what happens, it begins to kill our worship. It begins to diminish and dampen our prayers. We we grow silent in our testimony. We become first just inwardly and quietly sort of bewildered and Eventually, it grows into bitterness, and before we know it, it, it's like our relationship with God looks like a dysfunctional marriage where two people who once loved each other so vibrantly now live in the same house and never speak. Maybe you came to church this morning, and you used to have a vibrant love relationship with God. You used to find your great joy in God and His Word and His people and the things that He calls us to, but... You feel distant and cold and like two people who have grown apart. Well, in chapter 4, we're going to see how God met with this disappointed believer to deliver him from a life of bitterness and resentment. And I want you to notice that if, as you sort of go back and, and read the book of Jonah, because it only takes a couple minutes to read the whole book, they're very short chapters. You realize that it's not, if you look at it closely, you realize it's not written as a story. Jonah writes a confession. It's written much more as a confession. And one thing is certain about this book is that although it's filled with a lot of useful life application, it's not going to offer some trite answer to the mysteries and the disappointments in our lives. It's not going to do that. Jonah's going to teach us how, how God meets with people according to His plan and His purposes. And sometimes He meets with His people in pleasure and in pain. So if you've ever struggled or if you are struggling, Jonah chapter 4 is a very special place in Scripture, and it's for you. And I'm grateful that you're here this morning. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. This is his response to the Ninevites turning. So he prayed to the Lord, which is interesting. So he's angry, but he prays, and he said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled. Previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, 
Is it right for you to be angry? Here's Jonah declaring the goodness of God and the mercy of God. And in the same breath saying, so therefore because you're good and merciful, I shouldn't live anymore. I can't stand your mercy and your grace. It makes me not want to be here anymore. Now you can get your listening guide out so we can set the tone for this morning. Because here's the big idea for this last installment of Jonah. God uses both mercies and trials in our life to pursue our heart with great compassion and to save us from the evil around us and the evil within us. This is what we're going to see God do. He's going to use both mercies and trials, all grace, to pursue Jonah's heart with great compassion. And he's working to not only save us from the evil around us, but the evil within us. So look at verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and he sat under, under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. Now remember, Jonah went into the city and he said, In 40 days, God's going to blow this thing up if you don't listen to him and turn. And everybody turned. So now Jonah is out sitting on a mountaintop overlooking Nineveh and he's waiting to see what's going to happen. And what is he waiting for? Well, he's waiting to see if God's going to blow it up. He's wondering, maybe these people aren't, you know, if it, they're going to, it's not going to last. They're going to turn. They're going to go back to their evil ways and hopefully God's going to blow it up. He's just waiting to see what's going to happen. Now, notice Jonah's anger. It's not in an outburst of rage like some of you, when you get mad, you just explode like a bomb. But instead, it's a quiet withdrawal. So he backs away. He's, he's out of the company and companionship of anyone else. And he's off by himself, sitting on a mountainside. And what is he doing when he's sitting there? He is just sitting there in a growing preoccupation with himself. All he's thinking about is, all the things that are wrong with this and all the things he doesn't like about this. And what I want you to do is put yourself in Jonah's shoes. You're on your own. You're sitting in the desert. You're a few miles away from a city that you hate. Your heart is filled with anger and resentment and disappointment. You're just not happy. You're not happy with your life situation. Things aren't going according to your plan. You don't like this. So you, you make a shelter for yourself. But you're in the desert. There's not a lot to work with in the desert. There's some mud. You probably can find some water somewhere and maybe make a few bricks. There's not like there's big trees everywhere. And so you can gather up maybe some straw or some hay and some you know, random little things and try to make a little shelter. And so you try to do that and you sit there. And the sun's beating down on your head and you're miserable. And there's nowhere for you to hide. And there you are. And wrong as Jonah may be, God sees all this. God knows his heart. God knows all the things that are wrong with the way he's responding. Just like he does when you and I do the same thing. When we have a pity party for ourselves and when we don't like the way things are going. And so we withdraw 
and we get quiet and we get resentful. Verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Isn't it strange? The man who's been ungrateful, bitter, and dissatisfied with every single thing that's happened thus far finally is grateful for something. He's grateful for this plant that comes up and brings shade over him. So he goes to sleep, and when he wakes up in the morning, boom, there's a plant. Like miracle grows, got nothing on God. God just makes the plant go, bam, there it is. God saw how miserable Jonah was. And he gave him a gift to ease his discomfort. He blessed him in the midst of his rebellion and wrongness. And Jonah wasn't grateful to God. He was grateful for the plant. The vine. It was God's gift. And it brought comfort. And it brought joy and blessing to Jonah. What is your vine? What is your plant? What is it in your life that brings you comfort and blessing and joy? What is it that if I were to ask you, you know, what is a great gift that God's given you in your life? What would you be your initial response to that? Look at verse 7. But as morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. Well, so much for that. So Jonah wakes up the next morning anticipating another day of divine air conditioning under the plant. He wakes up, boy, he's thinking this is going to be great. And to his astonishment, the plant's destroyed as quickly as it came. It's now gone. Now put yourself in his shoes again and think about here you are. What are you saying? You're saying what Jonah's saying. You're saying, God, what in the world are you doing? You give me comfort and you give me joy. Then you take it away. Why did you allow this worm to come and destroy this plant? One day you're pouring out your blessing on me. The next day you're taking it away. And just as the vine came and brought blessing and shade to Jonah's life, the worm came and brought sorrow and disappointment. You see, it's... It's strange how it doesn't take long for, for our expectations to get set, does it? One day under the shade. And, and Now, the plant shows up in one day. But you, can, you just sense it because we're human, just like Jonah. You know in your heart, just like in Jonah's heart, the last thing you're thinking is it's going to disappear as quickly as it came. Because something good comes along and then we just immediately begin to set our expectation that that's the way it's going to be. That God sent this plant and so, amen, I got this plant and it's just going to be there. And why do we do that? Why do we just jump to the conclusion that it should stay there, that it's going to be there? And now it's gone. It's gone. 
So what has brought you sorrow? What has been a worm in your life that has brought pain, that has taken blessing away from you? Look at verse 8. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So again we think, what do we do when we're in Jonah's situation? Where something good was there and now it's gone and we're frustrated because it's gone, but then another bad thing happens. Another painful thing happens. Another uncomfortable thing comes into our life. And so if we were frustrated the first time, we're really done now. His shade is gone. Sand is blowing in his face. It's beating down on his head. And all this has happened in one day. So let's recap just quickly what happened. A vine shows up. It brings comfort and blessing. A worm shows up. It takes away the comfort, steals away the blessing. Brings disappointment and loss. Then the wind comes and it brings affliction and suffering. What is the wind that blows in your life? What is it that that aggravates you? What is it that you wish would go away? It causes you pain. It hinders your relationship with God because it makes you feel like He's distant from you or doesn't love you or isn't as trustworthy as you once thought He was. What is that? You see, here's the question. The question is, is God in control? And then the next question is, well, if he is, of what is he in control of? How much is he in control of? How does all this work? Like when I say, is God in control? Some of you think, well, he's in control. But what you mean is he's in control of the big things. Like he makes the sun rise and he sort of holds the universe together. But he's not really working in all the small things. And then others of you have a different idea. You think that God's in control even of some small things. But then of those, you have different categories of things. And so you talk about them in different ways. Now, you're quick to say that when good things come in, that that's God. But then when bad things come along, we use different phrases to sort of say that, you know. We, we, we say things like, well, God gave the blessing, but He allowed the pain. But let's don't make up things in our own mind or else we'll find ourselves exactly where Jonah is. Jonah, what we've seen over the last two months, is somebody who's done what so many people in our culture today do. Make up your, make, just make up your own God. Just make up a God that makes sense to you and works the way you think God ought to work. 
but let's don't do that. Let's read the Bible. Can we do that? Okay, then let's read it again. Let's look at verse 6, and what does the Bible say? God provided the vine. Then let's look at verse 7. God provided the worm. And then let's look at verse 8. How did the wind come? God provided the wind. And so we don't have to ask ourselves, is God in control? We're reading the Bible, and the Bible is telling us that He is absolutely in control, and He's in control the same way over the vine or the plant as He is over the wind and the worm. Amen! The Bible wants us to understand that. God's hand is just as much in the worm and the wind as it is in the vine. So it then raises another set of questions. Well, how is that possible? How is it that God can be in my great sorrow and my disappointment and my hurt and my pain and my loss? And I mean, if He loves me, He doesn't want me to feel this way and to hurt this way. So how do I reconcile all that in my mind? How do, I, how do I get my head around that all of that comes from the, the hand of God? How do we do this? How is it that God can be present in our pain? You see? You're glad you came to church this morning, aren't you? Because you've been asking this question. You've asked this question before. You need an answer to this question. So we're going to answer it this morning. We're going to let God help us and teach us and encourage us so that we won't be like Jonah, but we'll respond rightly to the things God's doing. Listen, there's a lot of bad information out there, and there's a lot of foolishness going on in under the, the, the banner of Christianity. You know... Uh, just when, when you just do certain things that, that I get to do as a pastor, you, you see things that other people don't see. For example, last Wednesday I got to see how hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people could be such a great encouragement to a family who suffered loss. Just to just come, I mean, just people, I mean, it was unbelievable how many people were here for that service. And then standing there at that gravesite and just looking at this sea of faces, just unbelievable. How, what a great encouragement that is to a family that's hurting and suffering great loss, right? But then also, you also realize that a lot of people don't know what to say in, in awkward, uncomfortable situations. And they're not, can I say this, smart. See, let me just give you some pastoral advice. When you, when you don't know what to say, shut up. <laughs> shut your mouth. Stop talking. There's a great great piece of advice because when you keep talking it gets worse not better and so what it has a lot to do with this because I, I 
I remember one time I was doing a, a service for a very young man who had passed away. And so, obviously, the, the difficulty in that moment is, is just the, our human response to the fact that a life clearly, obviously, got cut way short, right? And I would hear people in that situation say things, you know, to the family like, even God sometimes makes mistakes. That's a dumb thing to say. It's a very dumb thing to say. Even God sometimes makes mistakes. No. And, and here's the thing. That's said from a desire to be an encouragement. How is that an encouragement? Even if it was true, which it absolutely is not true, that is the furthest thing from an encouragement. And what happens is it's, it's those situations where the medicine offered is actually worse than the problem we're trying to solve. No, no, a God who makes mistakes is not the sovereign God of the Bible. Mm. It's not the God of Jonah chapter 4. No, it's not. The Scriptures teach about a, a, a totally different God, a God who's a God of providence. And let's look at this Providence. Now, let me explain providence to you. Providence, here's a good definition for you. Providence, it means that every detail of your life is ordered by the kindness of God who works in all things. I didn't put this on your listening guide because, let's face it, there wasn't any room. He works in all things, both good and evil, for His glory and our ultimate joy. That's providence, okay? That everything that's, that comes into our lives... God is orchestrating those things to bring us to a place of ultimate joy and to bring us to a place where we can give Him ultimate glory. Okay? So, burrow deep into our heart is the key to being delivered from Jonah's situation, this morbid preoccupation with self, this thing in us, this broken thing in us that makes us just, when we, when we're, we just had enough, we don't like the way things are going, we just withdraw and sort of cave in on ourselves, and we, all we can think about is everything's wrong. And here's, here's the thing, you, you, know, you know, you just know people, you know how this goes. You know where you find all the negative people? Together. More pastoral wisdom for you. They're together. Yes. You never find negative people in the company of positive people. It just doesn't work that way. No. All the negative bunch together. And they feed off of each other in negativity. And it's a big, it's just a big sinful mess. And at the core of it all is their total preoccupation with their self. All the things they don't like. All the things that aren't the way they should be. All the things about them that is not meeting their needs. It's not their expectations. How does God feel about it? That's a good question. 
You see, whenever you get upset about something, you should ask yourself, is God upset about this? And if God's upset about it, then amen. But let me give you a good warning. Don't ever say God's upset about something unless you know for sure He is. And how do you know for sure He is? You better be able to prove that in the Bible. Don't ever say God's upset about something. Be very careful. So if the Bible doesn't say God's upset about that, then you should never say that. And so really, we're upset about something because it's not the way we want it. Not the way we want it. Now, think about something with me. When Jesus tells us that our Heavenly Father knows even the sparrow that falls from the sky, what is He telling us about God? Is this not God's, uh, Jesus' way of telling us that the God of the Bible orders even the smallest details of life? Isn't that what Jesus is saying there? I mean, is, is that hard to figure out? If he knows even a sparrow that falls from the sky, clearly the meaning of that is that God is in the small details, right? What about when Jesus said that your heavenly Father knows the number of hairs on your head? Some of you, I could count the hairs on your head. That would be zero. What, what, think, now, now, come on, why is that in the Bible? What is, what is Jesus telling us? Isn't he not telling us that God takes great pleasure in knowing us better than we know ourselves? Raise your hand if you know how many hairs you got on your head. See, you don't know. So God knows, except for the zeros in the room. I get it. So God wants you to know that he knows you better than you know yourself. And more than that, God's saying that, you know what, something that's not important to you, how do I know it's not important to you? Because you never counted them. If it was important, you'd count them. You know why you didn't? Because it's not important. But you know what God's telling you? That things are important to him that aren't important to you. They're still important to him. You see that? Think about that. Wow. And so here's Jonah filled with all of these reminders of God's intricate care that the God that knows a sparrow that falls from the sky or the number of hairs on our head, this God, he causes a, a fish to swim to an exact appointed location. He causes a ship to be docked at an exact place in time going to an exact place he causes all of these details. He causes a worm to eat at his command. Exactly what he commands the worm to eat. Exactly at the time that he commands it to eat. He commands storms on the water. He commands storms in the desert. All of this is bearing witness to what? The providence of God. All of it. You see, whether... Whether it's in the fish or the storm or the vine or the worm or the wind. All of these things are equally the blessing of God. 
Because God is working in his providence, which is always according to what's ultimately best for us and brings him the most glory. And so they're all equally the blessing of God. Why? Well, because they're all sent for the betterment of Jonah. But some of them don't feel like that to Jonah. That's the problem. The problem's not what they are from God's perspective. The problem is what they feel like from our perspective. That's where the problem comes from. So here's your next blanks. God's purpose over time is to produce an increasing likeness to his son in the lives of each of his adopted children. We call this sanctification. That we're progressively being made into the image of Jesus. And in order for this to happen, it's going to be a continual process of things coming into our lives. All of which are the grace of God making us more like Jesus, but they don't all feel the same. Sometimes they feel good. Sometimes they feel terrible. Sometimes they don't feel like a whole lot of anything. But God's using them in our lives. So would it be safe to say that what what this means is that all of the tools that God uses to accomplish His purpose in our life could be categorized as gifts? Because if what they're designed to do If what the Bible is teaching us about God is that God is a God who does everything for a purpose. He never does anything without a purpose. And if His purpose is to make us into the image of His Son, Jesus, which is ultimately for our joy and for His glory, then even if it doesn't feel good at times, or even if we're not sure what's going on, then but if all of those things are for His ultimate purpose, then wouldn't it be fair to say that they're all gifts? Even the ones that don't feel like a gift. See, sometimes it's a vine. It brings shade and comfort. But sometimes it's a worm. Sometimes it's a wind. Look at verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. Now there's a window into the heart of Jonah right there. Now God's got Jonah right where God wants Jonah. Now Jonah is responding in transparency. He's not hiding anymore. He's like, you know what? You're right. I'm angry. And you know what? I'm angry and I want to die. And as bad as both of those two statements are, God's got to get us to a place of honesty and transparency before He can get us to where He wants us to go. And listen, we need to, we need to look at the emotion that's wrapped up in this moment. And there's a warning here in this, okay? There's a warning that we can get so enamored with and wrapped up in the vine that if it withers, we don't even want to live. 
You got that? Jonah is mad at God and doesn't want to live. Why? Because of a plant. Because of a plant. How easy is it for us to get our hearts wound up in things? Put way too much value in things. Put way too much energy, way too much emotion, way too much of all of the things that God's given us to steward are wrapped up in the wrong things. And the Bible has a word for this. It's called idolatry. It's when we're so wrapped up in the vine that we're just oblivious to the one who gave the vine. It's getting so cooped up in the gift that we forsake the giver. See, that's the Santa syndrome. That's why I call this sermon the Santa Syndrome, because that's exactly what it is. I want you to think about something with me for a second. Is anybody excited about seeing Santa? No, 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 no. Think with me for a second. I just I'm gonna I'm gonna pierce into your Warpedness. Come on, let's go on a little journey together. Think about this with me. As a culture, this is what we've embraced. Now, who's excited about seeing Santa? Nobody. Nobody's excited about being Santa, seeing Santa. You've never heard any child, you've never read a book, heard a story about anybody who said, I can't wait to sit down and spend some time with Santa. I want to have a, I want to have a conversation with Santa. No, the only reason anybody's even remotely wrapped up about Santa is because of what he's bringing. Nobody cares about Santa. And the way you know that is because, hey, we only even bring his name up once a year. Like if we wanted to know the guy, wouldn't we spend a little bit more time? I mean, wouldn't we visit with him in the summertime at least something? No. Santa shows up empty-handed. Houston, we got a problem. Now let's think about it. But if you bring gifts, if you bring gifts, oh, well, that changes everything. Now, now hold on. Now, let's just, let's just got, let's go a little deeper into this thing, okay? Let's swim on in there. We're already in dysfunction junction. Let's dive all the way in. So now let's just run through this so I'm clear. So because you have gifts, now we've, we've raised our children and we've taught them to not open the door till you know who's there. Don't talk to strangers. But it's okay for some weird fat man we don't know to slide down our chimney in the middle of the night. Because he has gifts. Everything's okay. Like forget everything we've warned you about safety, right? There's a fat guy you don't know in a weird suit in your house at night while you're sleeping. And that's okay. That's the only guy that can go into somebody's house in Sochi and not get shot. 
Because you bring gifts. We're so wrapped up in the gifts that we will throw all sensibility and wisdom out the window for gifts. Think about it. Can't you see how Jonah's whole story is about a God he thought he knew who wasn't willing to let him continue in his self-made deception? God refused to leave Jonah in his ignorance. God wants Jonah to know him for who he is. God is not okay with being Santa Claus. No, no. God wants a relationship. He wants you to be excited about him. Not about what he brings or what he gives. See, sometimes we confess God and we praise him with our hands raised and things are good and wonderful and our lives are filled with joy. But there's other times when we confess him and we praise him with our teeth gritted together through our tears. And anyone who's truly following God will follow him in both of those ways. You can't have one without the other. You see, the right response is to thank God for the vine. That's right. But don't live for the vine. That's wrong. When you're angry at God and don't want to live because your vine is gone, that's idolatry. Do you see how God here is just painting this drastic contrast between two hearts? His heart and the heart of Jonah. And what it is, he's showing us the difference between his heart and our heart. Here God is redeeming sinners as His Spirit sweeps across Nineveh. These wicked people who deserve nothing but death. You see, Jonah's right when he says that the Ninevites deserve to die. Because Jonah deserves to die. I deserve to die and you deserve to die. But God doesn't give based on what's deserved. Amen? So He sends His Spirit to Nineveh. And while He's doing that... Jonah is outside the city. He's removed himself. And he's, he's out there absorbed in his own problems and his disappointments. So what does God do? He shines a light right on Jonah's heart. Look at verse 10. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which are more than 120,000 per persons and who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? You see, Jonah didn't do anything to, to 
create the plant. He didn't have any, any, he didn't invest anything in the plant. God did all that. Yet he's all bent out of shape. But God made all those Ninevites in his own image. You see, God, God is the one who's vested here. And this is the blinding effect of self-absorption. See, because what happens to us is our heart gets consumed by the unexplainable mysteries of this life. Oh, we don't know why something's happening, and so we just are, are just flabbergasted. And listen, it's not getting better, it's getting worse. It's worse right now than it was a year ago. It'll be worse in two years. It'll be a hundred times worse ten years from now. I'm always joking with the staff. I said, I'm going to die and you're going to be the pastor. Because listen, this Google generation that's coming up, I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I don't know. I, I, God's going to have to give me some... Some, some something I don't have right now. I get so frustrated. I'm frustrated right now with our obsession. People are obsessed with knowing. It drives me insane. You cannot be obsessed with knowing and walk with God. Those two things are incompatible. And what do you think is happening to this culture that's growing up? That all they have to do is whip their phone out and type something in and they can know anything they want to know. They are the most ill-prepared people to walk with God than anyone that's ever, any generation that's ever lived. Because what are they going to do as soon as God doesn't make sense and there's no answer? You can't ask Google. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to get bitter. And you're going to pull into yourself and you're going to have a pity party and you're going to go sit on a mountaintop. It's a shame. It's a shame. I get so frustrated. I'm trying to talk to people about God. They're asking me 50 million questions. I'm like, at what point does faith enter this conversation? Like, I can't tell you all the things that are going to happen. I, I can't predict the future. This is what the Bible says we're supposed to do. So you should do this. And they say, well, what if it goes bad? Amen. You obeyed God. Is it possible to be genuinely grateful for your salvation and yet strangely disinterested in the salvation of others? I mean, think about this. It's the frightening reality of Jonah's life. It is the most frightening reality of the modern church. This reality that there's these people that are marching around under this banner of Christianity, yet they have no evangelistic unction or bone in their body. What? That, it, that the, the reality of standing before God, like the reality of this, of spending your life, like going through the motions of things, going to church and doing things and being in Bible studies and all these things. And then like standing before God and literally with two empty hands. And he's like, 
So whose life did you impact for eternity? Well, I went to a bunch of Bible studies. That's not the question. Did you make disciples? Did you multiply what was in you into someone else? That's the only question. There's no other question. It's the question. And we live in a world that's they're not concerned about that. It's the cancer that grows in the mutated cells of a theology that teaches that God, whether openly or subconsciously, that God exists to make us happy and healthy and prosperous. It is cancer for your soul. You will never, ever, ever walk with God if that's what you believe. Never. Because you don't know Him. In this country right now, there's literally untold millions of people who have no living faith in Jesus. And many of them were brought up in the church. They believe that Jesus died and rose. They believe that. But it's made little or no difference in the way they live their life. According to the Bible. Oh sure, they do things differently. They do this and do that. But it's all them. It's not God's heart. It's not God's priorities. It breaks my heart. And so many of them have been alienated from the church. And you know what they say when I talk to them? They say, I tried Christianity and it didn't work. And I say, I'm sorry. But you didn't try Christianity. You tried some other thing, some religious endeavor. See, we're people who live in a vine-centered culture filled with vine-centered Christians who go to vine-centered churches and clamor for vine-centered sermons. And we must constantly remind ourselves that self-absorbed Christianity is an oxymoron. The only kind of real Christians are Christ-centered Christians. Who go to Christ-centered churches, who know the difference when they hear a Christ-centered sermon. It's not tickling your ears or telling you what you want to hear. Listen, self-absorbed Christianity is it's not biblical. So God, listen, that's what God's saying. He says to Jonah, he says, should I not pity Nineveh? How, how is this shocking? Should I not pity Nineveh? Question mark. Jonah's suffering. You know why Jonah's suffering? Listen, this is very important. I want you to pay close attention to what I'm about to say. Jonah is not suffering because God's punishing him. Do you understand that? He's sitting on a mountain with the sun baking down and a scorching wind blowing across his face. If God wanted to punish him, it would be way worse than that. 
God's showing grace to Jonah. It's just not the grace we're used to thinking about. See, sometimes God's grace is uncomfortable grace. Think about all the uncomfortable graces that we see in the book of Jonah. So you know what we don't like? Raise your hand if you like fish grace. You don't like fish grace. No one likes fish grace. You like storm grace? No, you don't like storm grace. You like worm grace? No. You like wind grace? No. We really don't like enemy grace. I mean, that's what caused the whole problem to blow up in the first place, right? Enemy grace. We don't like that. All of those things are God relentlessly pursuing Jonah. Man, none of them feel like grace to Jonah, but all of them are grace from God. Listen, if God, so many times things are going bad in your life, and you're sitting there. Now think about how insane this is. You're sitting there in your own mind saying, God, why are you punishing me? Ask yourself a question. Is this God punishing me? Like if God wanted to punish me, would I be here Probably not. Mm -mm. It would be so much worse if he was punishing you. So what is he doing? He's trying to get your attention. It's uncomfortable grace. I mean, uncomfortable grace, it's very simple. It's, it's when God gives us what we need instead of what we want. That's all it is. And we don't like that. We don't like that. The whole time I was preparing for this sermon, I thought, I was thinking about how if I tried to preach this sermon in the jungles of Brazil, it would be the most bizarre. They would look at me like I'd lost my mind. They wouldn't get anything I've said this morning. It would make no sense to them at all. Because they don't live in a culture. where the Santa syndrome is just running rampant. They live in a culture where you wake up every day and a win is if you survive. See, here's the principle. The principle is my heart tells me that if I get what I want, I'll be happy. That's what Jonah's heart's saying. That's what your heart says, my heart says. But God tells me, that if I have his heart, then I'll be happy with whatever he gives me. You see? This is what I want you to see. That every person is on a journey. Every one of us, every person on earth is on a journey. And we're moving in a direction, whether we realize it or not or acknowledge it or not. It doesn't matter. We're on a journey and we're moving. And life is moving. And, and grains of sand are dripping through the hourglass. And time is passing. And God's purpose and plan are at work. And we, he may be working around us or he may be working in us and through us. But he's working nonetheless. And nothing can stop or thwart his plan. And we're all on this journey. And where are we going? You see, either we're moving in a direction where we're loving God more, or we're moving in a direction where we're hating God more. And it's one or the other. And no one's neutral. Because as you're moving, things are constantly happening and coming in and out of your life. And so it's either affecting you one way or the other. 
You're either moving towards loving him more or moving towards hating him more, resenting him more. And you see, all of this is going to come to a, a screeching halt one day. And history is going to end. And there's going to be two great gatherings of people. Not three, not two and a half. There's not going to be black, white, and gray in the middle. There's just going to be two groups. And that's it. And a definite, indivisible difference between the two. Just two. One group is going to worship God forever. The other group is going to hate Him forever. Now I want you to think about this. The vine, the worm, the wind. They're either going to cause you to resent God more or they're going to cause you to love God more depending on how. Listen, they're coming. And God's not changing. They're coming. But how you respond to them are either going to draw you closer into a deeper love relationship with God or they're going to make you resent Him more. They're either going to make you angry or they're going to make you worship. It's a, it's a, a, a purging. It's a testing ground for what's ultimately eternally going to come. Let me, let me show you the remedy for all this. In, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, this will come up on the screen. Here's what the Bible says. One simple sentence. This is the antidote. We love Him because He first loved us. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but you know, I, I pray that every single, every single, there's two things I always say. Before I preach, I say, God, give us ears to hear. And as I walk down that aisle and go out those doors at the end of every Sunday, I tell you that I love you. And I say, God, we love you because you first loved us. And here's the principle. The more I see God's love for me, the more I grow in loving him. That's what that verse is saying. You see, we love Him because He first loved us. So the more that I understand how He first loved me, the more I, have, uh, the more I dive into His initiating love for me, the greater my love for Him will be. But I can't have a greater love for Him apart from a greater knowledge of His first initiating love for me. That's what the Bible's teaching. So let me show it to you. Jesus comes along, and what does he do? The only person who never, needed, who never needed help with anything gets 12 people to help him. Yeah. So what does Jesus do? Jesus gets 12 disciples to be with him. He calls them to be with him, to be his friend, to be his companions, to join with him so he could love them and they could love him together. They, they witness and experience all the great things that happen when the, when the kingdom of heaven opens up and the kingdom of God bursts forth onto the earth. Think of all the, the, all the, the unbelievable days they had together, Jesus and his 12 companions. And then the worm came. You see, initially, Jesus calls them, and it's divine. 
And man, Jesus is healing people and everything's going awesome. And he's feeding 5,000 with some loaves and fishes. And he's calling Lazarus out of the grave. And everybody's cheering and they're waving palm branches and that's all going to be great. But then the worm comes. And the disciples who were his friends and had brought him comfort and joy and blessing, they left. They abandoned him. They turned their back on him. The vine was gone. There was no more laying in the shade under the blessing of God. One of them even betrayed him with a kiss. The one that Jesus was closest to of the twelve publicly disowned him. But what comes after the worm? The wind. The scorching wind. And so then comes the east wind. And there's Jesus, deserted and alone. Can't get any worse than this. The wind comes. And he's beaten and he's mocked and he's spit upon and he's hung on a cross and he's crucified. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about all the unanswered questions in your life. You have them just like me. Don't line up after the service to come ask Pastor Tony, hey, explain this to me. I don't know. I'm not God. You can't answer my questions and I can't answer yours. Your life is filled with unexplained mysteries of why things happened the way they did. Why these painful events have come into your life and why this and why that. And, and you're, some of you are just bent out of shape because in all your crying out to God, all you've heard is silence. And you know what Jesus heard when he said, why have you forsaken me, Father? Nothing. Not one word. No one said anything. He hung there on the cross for you in silence. No answers. No Google. No information. Left alone. Abandoned by the ones he came to save and give his life for. But you know what? He didn't waver. He didn't stumble. No, he didn't do that. Even as the heavens went dark and silent, all the unanswered questions hanging in the balance. What did Jesus do? He trusted the heart of the Father more than what he felt from the hand of the Father. You see, he knew the character of his dad. He didn't waver. He set his face like a flint to Jerusalem because he knew who his father is. And so he didn't need to know all the information. He knew the character 
and the nature. And you know how I know that? Is because Jesus affirmed his trust in the Father by what he said when it was all over. Do you remember what he said? His response to death was, Now I commit my soul into your hands. I trust you, Father. In the midst of the silence and the unanswered questions and the pain and the suffering and all the things that I don't like, all the things that caused me to sweat blood in the garden, all the disappointments of the people that I had around me that have stabbed me in the back and abandoned me and left me, all of that in the midst of all of that. But I know you and I trust you. We're all tempted to think that because we're God's child, things ought to go well and right for us. We're all tempted to do that. That our life should be more predictable and easy because we're God's children. But the truth is, there's going to be many circumstances that come into our lives that we don't understand. And if you don't already know this, we should go ahead and get it out on the table, but you're not going to get the answers to all the questions you think that you need. Not in this life. This is a faith life. I want you to know because I love you. Struggles are part of God's plan for you. They are part of His plan for you. You don't have to like that. You don't have to like me saying that. It's the truth. Don't allow yourself to think that God has turned His back on you when you're hurting and you feel alone and you're bewildered and you don't understand. Don't allow that to happen because that's not true. Don't let yourself begin to buy into the possibility that maybe God's not trustworthy after all because that's not true. That's not true. When you begin to doubt the goodness of God, the worst possible thing will happen. You'll quit going to Him for help. And that's the worst thing you could possibly do. One thing we all know about ourselves is that we never run to help to someone we doubt. God's chosen to let us live in this fallen world because He, he plans to employ the difficulties that come with this life to complete His work in me and you. It means that there's going to be moments of uncomfortable grace. And yes, I want to praise God and hug you and, and, and smile with you and dance with you when the, when the vine comes. But I'm going to cry with you and sit with you and love you when the worm comes and the wind comes. Because that's understanding what this is all about. 
I really want you to understand that these moments of your frustration and bewilderment, they're not an interruption of His plan. They're not a failure of His plan. They're an intricate, necessary part of His plan. See, because what God wants for Jonah and what He wants for me and what He wants for you is He wants us to know that He's always a good Father who knows how to give good gifts to His children even if they come in the wrapping of pain. I'm sorry for your hurt. And there's, there's things inside of me that, that still think sometimes that I wish I could take it away. Because I'll never, I'll never get to a place where I can watch people I love hurt and not be bothered by that. But at the same time, I also know that it's wrong For me to, to want to or try to take something away that God's given you. What he wants me and you to do is walk together through it. And embrace it for what it is. Believe in him as a God of providence. We just won't know everything. It's okay. Jesus showed us. I commit my soul into your hands, Father. Because to who else would I go? Only you have the words of eternal life.